I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Dass, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey folks, welcome to the Real Change Anthology. My name is Lily Cushman, and I'm the producer for the Meta Hour podcast. In celebration of the paperback book release of Real Change in November of 2021, we've created an anthology of interviews to explore some themes from the book. These interviews originally aired in 2020 with Sharon speaking to various folks about the intersection of mindfulness, loving-kindness practice, and social action. We're delighted to reissue these conversations to you now as a new collection of weekly episodes organized in the following themes. Agency in action, grief to resilience, activism as art, anger to courage, the interconnected world, and burnout to balance. For this fourth episode of the anthology, we're exploring the theme of anger to courage. This episode features interview clips from Devin and Craig Hayes, Sensei Joshin Burns, 
Mark Solomon, Malika Dutt, and Shelley Tagelski. Each speak about their transformational journey working with anger, both pitfalls and promises of this powerful emotion, and how to harness it for a courageous heart and mind. Our first clip is from episode 128 of the Meta Hour, featuring Sensei Joshan Burns. It originally aired April 11th of 2020. Joshin is a Zen priest, teacher, activist, and the founder of the Breadloaf Mountain Zen community in Vermont. Joshin maintains a core practice of bearing witness to homelessness and has spent much of his career working for social change nonprofits in the areas of AIDS and HIV prevention, child welfare, and community-based philanthropy. In this clip, Joshin shares about his personal journey, learning how to recognize and honor his anger and find his own empowerment through self-compassion. He also shares about the necessity of anger in activism as an important threshold for taking action. Here's the clip. I have whole sections in the book about turning helplessness into action and helplessness being at the root of a lot of anger, you know, so transforming some of that anger, the energy of the anger into action. And I use the ACT UP movement as really the prime example, you know, like a completely grief-stricken community. Not only did people take care of one another in the most selfless ways, but there was a movement, you know, like, let's get stuff changed. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, but so anger has been a bit of a theme for me too. You might also imagine, given the story I told about my, my father, that I was really angry with him. I mean, at a very deep and personal level, it wasn't just angry at the system, you know, um, which in some ways it's easy to be angry with something kind of impersonal, like all those, you know, the, the horrible system there that, that harms us or something. But the harder anger for me was the anger I felt toward my father for decades, really. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt um, abandoned uh, by him after our mother died. And I wrote him off, you know, just as a human being, I, I wrote him off. And I couldn't bring thoughts of him to mind without feeling a lot of rage and even disgust at times. And it was embarrassing for me. I mm-hmm. felt embarrassed by feeling those things, you know. And even mm-hmm. after I became a pretty regular practitioner of Buddhism, I noticed I had this in me and they were very strong emotions and I felt oddly ashamed of them. You know, I couldn't like integrate them in. And, you know, this is a kind of a strange bodhisattva story in a way is when he was dying, he reached out to me and, you know, my gut, my, like I really wanted to abandon him in my body. I wanted to abandon him. You know, I wanted to say too bad. You had your chance, you know, it's over. You missed it. You know, it, it was, I was so surprised by the strength of those feelings and it was eating me up. And I think, you know, Zazen during that period meditation, I found myself just pretty disturbed by a lot of it. And 
And at the same time, oddly enough, this is like the strange paradox. I was already doing some homelessness work, you know, and I was noticing like, oh, I had all this compassion for these more anonymous homeless people out there. And I could feel something for them and could look upon their suffering in this way, like I could help, you know, it was, it was odd. But when I looked at my own father and his own experience of homelessness, I, I couldn't muster the same thing. So that really gave me a signal, like something was amiss. And I kind of knew I had to face it. You know, I don't know if that's just getting older and maturity or something about practice, you know, that allowed me to think uh, and uh, have the courage in some ways to say, I need to go see him and I need to address this. Yeah. And so I, I did that. And, and in that experience, of being with him face to face. And, you know, this is Bernie Glassman's language, like bearing witness to his life, you know, like dropping some of my own stuff, like practicing the discipline through technique, really, of kind of putting some things down, noticing that my anger is there, but I don't have to feed it or activate it so much. I could open to him in a way. And in that process, he became a human being again to me. And I think I kind of became a little more human too in, in that process. Mm-hmm. And there was this other aspect as time went on, I realized part of it too was I, I began to honor my own anger, you know, like my anger toward him. I was hurt, you know, and that anger is in some way that it's a valid and even a wholesome response when we're hurt mm-hmm. and you know like i i could learn how to bow to it in a way and that began a process of think healing and transformation for me well it's like there's the dharma right there and it's so tricky you know to honor the feeling we're having mm. um not to in any way try to discard it or feel like i shouldn't you know i've been practicing all these years i shouldn't have this you know but uh Nonetheless, to have the kind of enough space to decide, do I want this to govern my actions? Yeah. You know, do I want this to govern my choices? Like, what if I refused to go see him and he died? Right. You know, what if? Um, You know, and so there's something, it's so delicate not to disown what we're feeling or be ashamed of it and to see the wisdom as you did in it you know, or or the energy within it that can be very, very important. And at the same time to have that sense of empowerment, you know, is, is this what I want to define my life or not? And I think the basis of it is self-compassion in a lot of ways, you know, because if we're, if we're feeling that cut off or we feel uh, that much resentment, like I'm told by my friends in AA that the single most common feeling that leads people to go back into drinking is resentment, you know, Mm -hmm. it's damaging to be enveloped in and overcome by those feelings. And it's not because they're bad, you know, it's it's that they're so painful and um, so distancing in some way. And so I think it's really out of, out of compassion for oneself that one looks for a way of dealing with them, which of course becomes compassion for others. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and part of it was also just seeing 
the toxicity of it in my, in me, you know, I thought, wow, I'm like bathing my brain over and over and over again in this kind of toxin. And there's, yeah, as you're saying, there was kind of an element of choice in there. Like, is that really how I want to be? And just having the space to ask myself that question allowed for a new response to it. And that's interesting. Space allows action to happen, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really true. And in fact, that's, you know, back to the part of my own burnout. I think it was the lack of space in my life that led to the kind of burnout that I experienced back, uh, you know, a few decades back. And that's what that therapist was pointing at, you know, create some space. And, you know, as an activist, I still, I mean, you're right to kind of say there's anger in activism. Last year, I got arrested uh, protesting the caging of children at the border. I just think it's such an, you know, it's, it's, it's really an outrage, right? It's outrageous that we do this. And, um, and uh, I've been, you know, really angry about that situation, about kind of the direction the country's going. But I have to say it feels different to me now than it did in the 80s and 90s. Um, I'm not sure back in the 80s and 90s I knew how to, as we're saying, kind of honor that anger or see it as a, a gate or as an th important threshold or as a spotlight or something. You know, I'm, I, I feel like I'm able to see down deeper into it to reveal a set of deeper values and to even realize for myself what I cherish most. You know, what, what is this anger telling me about my values, about what I feel like I want to stand for in my life and in this particular world that we live in? And so it was interesting in this experience of protesting up there and then getting arrested what we were doing was um, we blocked off the entrance and exit to an immigration center. And a lot of people were working inside. And I remember doing something kind of similar back during the AIDS epidemic. We used to lay down in front of government buildings, you know, die-ins. And this time around, in blocking those places, I was really considering how much I valued the people that were working inside the ICE department as people inside immigration, that I wasn't kind of constructing them to be like all bad, which is what I used to do, that these are human beings with their own complex lives and that they too are fundamentally dignified and worthy and complete human beings. And that feels like a really different kind of thinking about oneself as an activist than the earlier time when everybody was the enemy, you know, and we were all victimized by them. But instead, something shifts in my perspective now. You know, I think I see the complexity of the whole system that conspires to lead people to think certain ways, do certain things, hold certain kinds of jobs, compromise. You know, we're all compromising our values in some way. None of us get to live them perfectly. And there's a lot of imperfection. And just that little bit of softening of the anger, the anger then doesn't deplete me. 
or, you know, I almost feel, um, you were used the word already, kind of empowered in a way to stand for what I stand for here, but in a way that is clear and firm, but also soft. Roshi Joan, you know, often talks about the strong back and the open front. And that's more what it feels like to me now to be engaging in activism. I think what's so confusing for a lot of people is that they would equate that kind of, let's say, compassion for people who are working within ICE with weakness, you know, with giving in or no longer taking a stand. And it's it's really not so. And it's very hard to explain, I find, in words. And it's it's easier to understand from an inner recognition of like, oh, right, you know, here it is. It's it's being strong, being clear, taking action, but not from such a a corrosive place, perhaps, of hatred. Yeah, and I, you know, I think in my earlier days, uh, there was something in me that, I, I don't know how to put it exactly, there was some kind of ill will in it, you know? Like, even though I was standing for something virtuous, like ending the AIDS epidemic, there was something quite violent about it. And, you know, I think Thomas Merton talks a little bit about that, you know, the, the violence of, of activism is a real hindrance. It's a real thing to watch out for, where all you're doing is reinforcing a violent system. And there's something else, there's another aspect to it, which is really being medicine to the system. Can we position ourselves in that mm -hmm. way? where we're kind of an antidote. And some medicines are strong, right? Some medicines or medical procedures, all that stuff, they can be quite uncomfortable, painful. But they're administered and delivered with the real hope of healing and, mm -hmm. um, and, and creating wellness. And that just feels different to me in my body. Our next clip is from episode 140 of the Meta Hour, featuring Malika Dutt. It originally aired November 3rd of 2020. Malika is a leading innovator in storytelling and culture change, bringing together the power of ancient wisdom and spiritual practices with contemporary technologies and tools for creative transformation. She combines her creative advocacy for a thriving world with a coaching, speaking, and strategy practice that connects planet, people, and purpose. In this clip, Malika speaks about how she's worked to honor the complexity of her anger and rage as part of her spiritual practice and work as an activist. Here it is. I find that. For me, contemplative practice has really started to intersect very deeply with rage, with grief, with wrath, with just this life force that exists around just the outrageousness of what we have done as human beings to one another and to this earth. And I can hold all of that and infuse it with loving kindness, with compassion with empathy, 
with a deep, deep, deep commitment to service, to faith, if you will, and that there isn't a contradiction between the two. And I want to speak to that, Sharon, because I find in a lot of contemplative traditions that, uh, you know, we're taught to somehow overcome our rage or transcend it. And I think that it's really important to first honor it, see it, recognize it, uh, really understand all of the ways in which it's, it's allowed so many of us to just simply stay alive in a societal mm-hmm. context that would kill us, that would see us dead. I mean, if I take it to the India context, for example, and I was talking about Hinduism earlier, you know, we have 37 million more men than women in India. And so sometimes when I sort of hear people talking about Hinduism as this uh, non-violent, you know, the principle of non-violence or even Buddhism, um, or the teachings of the Buddha, if you're not going to call these isms, but they have turned into isms, you know, Mm. in a context where Burma is just, you know, Mm. killing and demonizing the Rohingya in ways that we cannot even fathom, right? Like all of these contradictions that exist within these spaces, that there's a way in which I am learning to hold the essence of the teaching and see how it might be applied while also understanding the deeply destructive ways in which these religions or these faith-based traditions have played out and caused enormous harm and continue to cause enormous harm. So I feel like that's some of the reckoning that I am dealing with, again, from a place of interconnectedness, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is not just a this or that. How does one learn how to hold polarity and complexity, and the this and the that, so that we can be more whole in coming into the creation of what it is, whatever it is that is emerging in these pandemic times. I think that is very beautiful, and I think it's also a sign of maturity. You know, like I remember when I first started practicing, which was 1971, and I'm somewhat famous. This was a, a Goenka course. It was a 10-day immersion course in meditation, in mindfulness meditation. And I'm somewhat famous amongst the people that formed. There's still some of my closest friends that I met in that first retreat for once having marched up to Goenka and looking him in the eye and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, thereby laying blame you know, exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him. And it took me a long time to realize that, first of all, I'd been hugely angry and I hadn't seen it. And also that it wasn't something I was trying to cut off, you know, or reject, but just as you said, to relate to it differently because the fundamental virtue is energy. And to somehow harness the energy without the burning and the self-destructiveness and the other things that can happen when we're lost in it or overcome by it to such a degree that it becomes everything. And maybe that's a combination with that sense of dignity, you know, and rightfulness of one's being alive and and being on this earth. Like one of the people I interviewed for the book was a woman who's really a leader in New York City in the striking fast food worker movement, striking for $15 an hour and, and a union, the right to unionize. And And one of the things I really felt from her and 
other colleagues of hers that I met was this sense of dignity, you know, that uh, even their families would say to them, don't rock the boat, you know, don't do anything. You've got almost nothing and you'll have nothing if you, if you really uh, stand up and, you know, demand more. And, and they just could not do that. They could not accept that story about themselves, that they were only worth the way they were being treated. And I thought the amount of self-respect it takes to go up in those very fearful circumstance and to actually successfully lead a movement was extraordinary. And were they fueled by anger? Of course, you know, that was part of it, but they weren't somehow just about that. You know, they were reaching into this well of the rightfulness of their being. And it was, it was so awesome. And the people who brought us together were people who, friends of mine who never said, it would really be helpful to these people if they learned how to meditate. They kept saying, you should meet these people. Your community should meet these people. These are incredible people. The next clip is from episode 121 of the Meta Hour, featuring Shelley Tagelski. This originally aired May 4th of 2019. Shelley is a mindfulness teacher, author, and grassroots community organizer who focuses much of her work supporting underserved communities, community organizations, nonprofits, and schools. She's deeply involved in offering trauma-informed healing practices to communities who've been affected by gun violence and mass shootings. Her first book, Sit Down to Rise Up, was released in September of 2020. In this clip, Shelley discusses her experience teaching self-care for activists and how a longer-term perspective can be useful when working with anger to prevent burnout. Here's the clip. So you, as I, encounter different activists in this time, and do you agree that there's this kind of despair often? And what do you say? I think there's, there is despair, but I feel like there's more that despair leads to anger. What I see most of the time now in the last several years is a rage. It's an anger and it's a dangerous thing because I think what happens is, is that um, it leads you to to a place where you don't have clarity. And also, as you know, like anger is just a bad thing to hold on to because it, it can hurt you physically, mentally, in, in so many ways. Um, so what I try to do is, um, and I actually, it's funny because I remember talking to you about this when you came down back in 2017 to speak about the, the Women's March, uh, to the Women's March group here in Broward County. And I remember saying to you, like, you know, one of the books that I use in my self-care for activists or my mindful activism courses or workshops that I teach is the book that you and Bob Thurman co-wrote, which is Learning to Love Your Enemies. And just saying that title, when I would say, like, this is required reading, you need to buy this book, people would be like, but how can we love our enemies? <laughs> you would think of like one specific individual, of course. Um, 
that has been occupying a lot of people's time right now and, and has been present in our mind and is affecting our lives in a great way. And it was almost like shocking. It was like abhorrent to them that I could even suggest, you know, when all I was doing was actually just telling them which book title to get and to order on Amazon. <laughs> so it's anger that I'm seeing most often. And I think it's really because, again, it's it's a matter of feeling like I somebody's going to take something away from me. The fuel that I need to carry with me is fuel that is informed by rage. And so what I'm trying to say to people is, no, that is not the fuel that you need because that's going to lead to activism fatigue and burnout. You cannot have any type of resiliency. This is actually, you know, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint and you're going to burn out. And I've seen so many activists um, who started really strong in 2016, 2017, you know, 2018, who went to every march and every protest and every... Um, every you know rally to to the capital, um, and and where are they now? You know they're exhausted. They're they're exhausted. They 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 really aren't as um, active as as they I think would like to be, um, because they're disenchanted, mm-hmm. and it's, it's just become too much and overwhelming. So with that, just with that premise, and also like going back to the sentiment that self care is an act of resistance. Um, I can kind of maybe plant that seed with them and get them to understand that there could be a different way for them to be more effective and to actually still have balance in their life and joy. They don't always have to like, you don't have to be angry all the time and outraged Mm -hmm. all the time. This next clip is from episode 132 of the Meta Hour featuring Mark Solomon. It originally aired September 21st of 2020. Mark is a nationally recognized political strategist and campaign leader with 25 years of experience. He has a deep track record of assembling winning bipartisan campaigns on the most challenging issues. He was one of the key architects of the marriage equality movement and has applied lessons from it to help secure impactful criminal justice reforms, pass laws enacting automatic voter registration, advance pro-immigration policies, and build partisan support for ending partisan gerrymandering. In this clip, Mark reflects on a three-month meditation retreat he sat in Barrie, Massachusetts in which he explored his anger towards himself and others, and how that led him to discover a more connected place within himself. Here's the clip. So one of the um, themes from the book, Real Change, that I'm exploring also in this podcast series, which, by the way, is named Meta, M-E-T-T-A. Not everyone knows that because they just hear Meta. Uh, Meta, M-E-T-T-A, is the Pali word language of the original Buddhist text for loving kindness or love. So, um, but some of the themes I'm exploring in the book are around anger and rage and the ways they can propel us to action and the ways they can burn us up. So can you tell us a little bit about your own personal journey with anger? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I remember what, during that three month retreat in, um, in Barrie um, is when I really, you know, uncovered a lot of so much anger and rage. Um, 
at, uh, you know, at myself, at my family, at the sort of the conditions that led me to stay in, you know, stay in the closet and keep this aspect of myself hidden for so long. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of people have this notion that you go to a long meditation retreat and you uh, discover the, um, the learnings of the Buddha in, uh, you know, in, in, in sort of in, in a blissful sort of way. And that was never my experience. It was like, anger rage and it, it, mm-hmm. it was um and it was exhausting looking at it uh, for and and i remember some of the teachers uh told me you know don't stare at these you know these uh mind states for you know 15 hours a day you need to pace yourself um but i think what i've been able to do with them is to or what i understand is that and, and, and get in a sort of visceral way is that there is something beneath those feelings, those difficult uh, emotions and feelings. And that is this notion of connection and love. And it's, it doesn't mean that that's what's, you know, sort of prominent much of the time, but it's uh, just having experienced being in touch with that feeling and um, um, of, of love and connection uh meant for me that even when I'm feeling angry and, um, you know, disconnected and, you know, I, I, I knew that, um, that there was something, uh, something else, something, uh, something better. I'm so glad you said that. Cause I think part of what, um, makes us feel the most hopeless or broken in a way is when we don't feel there's anything intact, you know, that, it's all fallen apart. And in the new preface for this book, Real Change, I got to write a preface because the publication date was delayed. Hmm. And um, it was delayed because of the pandemic. And of course, the whole book was written before the pandemic. Right. And um, somebody was reading it and uh, suggested that I try to give some context for our time. And, uh, so I wrote this preface, and part of what I said in the preface was that word is that after the atom bomb dropped in Hiroshima, there was even further psychological devastation because there was a rumor that the grass and the trees would never grow again. So it's like even nature was just broken and severed, and that as horrible as the suffering was after the the bomb once people were reassured that in fact the grass and trees would grow again, then there was a much greater ability to go on. So I think we, we count on something being intact, you know, mm-hmm. even when things are terrible and cruel and awful, there's something that we can actually count on. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Our final clip is from episode 142 of the Meta Hour, featuring Devin and Craig Hayes. It originally aired on December 1st of 2020. Devin has been committed to meditation since 2000, spending years in retreat in the Insight and Vajrayana traditions. Craig began intensive meditation training in 1994 living in a Zen monastery for six years before getting his PhD in counseling psychology. Together, they are teachers and mentors in the spiritual community and have just released their new book, How Not to Be a Hot Mess. In this clip, 
Devon shares her observations of anger in her meditation practice as a source of energy and clarity. Craig speaks about the different aspects of anger he has experienced, when it feels clear and useful, compared to times when it's more sticky and judgmental. Here's the clip. Yeah, I think for me, one of the biggest insights during this whole period has been working with anger. And like when anger transforms into courage, I've noticed in my own practice, there is a habit, and this probably comes from white dominant culture conditioning around really not, not okay to feel angry. Like anger is a defilement. I should not feel that way. I should be doing loving kindness or somehow transforming it to Mm -hmm. feel wholesome. And yet, wow, I've had just so many days where rage really was a predominant emotion, learning how to work with it in a different way. And it's been quite interesting, actually, to change my attitude about it and to see, oh, there's so much energy in this anger. And there's actually a kind of, you know, a lot of it is about Mm -hmm. justice. It's about seeing injustice and then the natural response of the heart. Because I think I care, there's just rage. Mm -hmm. That comes. And I do think I'd be curious to hear what you have to say about this. I think that anger has the potential for really powerful action. Mm-hmm. And that it can be a yeah, maybe courage is a good word. For me, it's been like clear seeing that anger has a kind of clarity in it that sees things truly. Mm-hmm. And from that place, I think when it's also measured with a kind of presence of mind and maybe enough wisdom to know it's appropriate, it can be a powerful change agent. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I actually need this kind of rage in order to have the courage to speak truth mm-hmm. to power or to talk about issues that feel scary to talk about, or even to be willing to mess up and make a mistake. Mm-hmm because I'm moving from this place of really deeply caring so much. Mm-hmm. Well, I think anger is, it's like a double-edged sword. And in, in some ways it does have that kind of clear incisiveness and a willingness to speak. And we know that just from daily life. Sometimes it's like the angriest person in the room in the meeting that's willing to say, look at that problem when everyone else is carefully looking mm-hmm. in the other direction, you know? So there's that, but there's also a kind of incredible delusion sometimes in anger. I mean, I've seen that in my own, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, um, where it's like, if you think about the last time you were really, really angry at yourself, it's not a time where you also think, you know, I did five great things, same morning, right? <laughs> They're gone and just wiped out. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not even sure how to describe the path from one kind of anger to the other kind of anger, but you know, when you're in that, deluded state then options disappear mm-hmm. everything is is really that's mm-hmm. really like the buddhist psychological description of tunnel vision and you yeah. get stuck mm-hmm. but there is that yeah. other kind of anger you know or that other aspect to anger where it's right. that cutting through incisive willingness to point at difficulty mm-hmm. and so on yeah i like that you're i like this kind of parsing of it into two kinds of anger i think for me it's a, it's a question of stickiness, you know, like when my anger gets sticky mm. and magnetic and it starts to pull everything into it and cloud my vision, that feels unwholesome. 
However, you know, Devin and I now have been on this uh, racial justice and racial awareness kind of journey for a decade. You know, I wrote my dissertation about um, the experiences of people of color in primarily white meditation mm -hmm. communities. Devin has studied quite a bit. Uh, you know, she went through CDL4, the Community Dharma Leaders Training at Spirit Rock with Larry Yang and Gina mm -hmm. Sharp. And, you know, we had this kind of wake up moment, maybe back in 2013, something like that, 2012. And it just is accompanied by anger. There's this kind of heat to it of, I can't believe it's this way. And it cannot stay this way, which is energizing. That flash is enlivening, it's energizing, it's motivating. And for me, the question is, do I get stuck? So like a flash of anger, when I, when I meet injustice, when I see injustice, and I have that sense of a kind of like white hot flash, that can be very wholesome. Then there are the moments of like, does it get stuck? And does it become habituated? And do I get judgmental? And the process of being socially engaged for me has been playing between these polarities, between these two kinds of anger. Like the sometimes the healthy anger or the motivated anger or even like a loving anger. And then habituated states of mind taking over and almost like appropriating that anger in a way that cuts off my connection to other people and even can interfere with the change work that needs to happen. I wonder if that's reflected in language, you know, like if we were just to listen to the story we are telling about uh, the incidents, the outrage, the difficulty, the challenge. I think it would be interesting, like, or, or if it's a person, you know, we're saying you never and you never will. Yeah. You never get better, you know, about this. And, I mean, that's indicative of kind of stuckness, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. As yeah. to yeah. either, you know, this is wrong or to get really, you know, PC about it. Like, I felt hurt <laughs> when you said that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know and uh thinking in a more you know political level it would be people shouldn't have to live this way or or this is wrong or mm -hmm. something like that yeah but you know i'm a child of the 60s i remember those college protests too in fact i went back to buffalo where mm -hmm. i went to school uh last fall and uh, my friend gave me a, a tour of the campus and and he he had gone to law school there, and uh, I, I pointed at something. A lot had changed, but I, I pointed at something. He said, I was tear-gassed here. And then, mm -hmm. oh, I remember protesting over there, you know. And, you know, and, and so there, there was not an idea of reconciliation or some kind of story, some kind of narrative that could be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. It was it was really pretty stark. Thanks so much for listening. The paperback edition of Real Change is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more at SharonSalzberg.com. 
This has been the Meta Hour Podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease.